Welcome to the Femininja podcast where we're looking at uh, ending femicide. This is a five-part series co-curated by Feminet and Womankind Worldwide to commemorate 16 days of activism 2021. Join us as we explore ways to end impunity for femicide or on femicide based on the lived experiences and activism of activists working in the global south. My name is Marvel and I will be moderating today's session. Um, today, we are honored to have Melissa. Hi, Melissa. Hi, Marvel. Um, before we kick it off uh, with a little background, Melissa, please introduce yourself. Tell us what you do. I am um, currently Senior Director of Program and Global Advocacy at the Center for Women's Global Leadership, which is based mm -hmm. in Rutgers University, New Jersey. Um, I'm actually from Nepal, though, and I'm a human rights lawyer. Oh, wow. Okay, so I'm looking forward already to this. Sixteen Days of Activism is a global uh, campaign uh, to end gender-based violence. It's conducted annually since 1991, between 25th November which is the International Day to End Gender-Based Violence, to the 10th December, which is the International Human Rights Day. The global coordinators of the campaign are the Center for Women's Global Leadership, CWGL, are represented here by Melissa, we're going to be talking to in a little while. Its stated objectives include raising awareness on gender-based violence as a human rights issue, developing and sharing new and effective strategies to address gender-based violence and demonstrating solidarity among women's rights institutions and movements involved in violence against women and girls organizing. So 2021 is a milestone. It's the 30th anniversary of the campaign. And as per CWGL, like you'll tell us more about it, the anniversary theme focuses on ending impunity on the issue of femicide or the most extreme form of GBV as it relates to killings of women and girls in all their diversities, often by men, simply because they're women and girls. So on to the first question, uh, Melissa. According to the UN, at least 66,000 women are violent, violently murdered annually and constitute 17 percent of all homicides globally. Based on CWGL's work and the trends you've monitored over time, how would you define femicide? That is the first question. And then something that ties to it is what are its most common forms? Well, first of all, Marvel, thank you for having me on today to talk about such an important topic. Um, the Center for Women's Global Leadership, as you noted earlier, is the global coordinator of the 16 Days Campaign. And uh, this was initiated 30 years ago, and it was launched in collaboration with feminists from around the world. And back then, violence against women was actually a, an issue that helped galvanize feminists and activists to work together. So, you know, 30 years later, here we are struggling against some of the same issues. And in fact, it's clear that things have gotten worse instead of getting better. So that's one reason that really motivated us to take on this issue this year, femicide, because it is a global issue. It is a human rights concern. It is a feminist concern. And um, we need governments to be accountable. 
to do more to end femicide. So going to the point of definitions of femicide, there are quite a few definitions of femicide, including legal definitions. And how femicide is defined has also evolved over time, as the concept of gender has also evolved and become more inclusive. Now, one definition that we find to be suitable is that of femicide as the quote-unquote killing of women because of their sex and or gender. This captures the killing of women who are born female and that of non-binary persons who may be killed because they identify as female and do not fit within a heterosexual norm. Mm. Now, femicide exists in so many different forms and occurs in so many different spheres and local contexts, which is probably why in some ways it does defy one common definition. Now, that being said, it's important to have a definition on the basis of which data can be collected, measured, and compared. And in that sense, I think it's also probably useful then to focus on common criteria and elements. So in that vein, what is abundantly clear is that misogyny is a common denominator in many femicides. And what fuels femicide is impunity or the sheer lack of consequence for perpetrators. Now, going back to the different forms, what we have found to be very useful is the classification put forward by the former Special Rapporteur on Violence Against Women, its causes and consequences, uh, Rashida Manju, who categorized femicides as active or direct and passive or indirect. Now, in the direct category, uh, she included killings as a result of intimate partner violence, which we know account for a very large number of femicides. She also included sorcery, witchcraft-related killings, honor-related killings, armed conflict-related killings, dowry-related killings, gender identity and sexual orientation-related killings, and ethnic and indigenous identity-related killings as some examples of direct femicide. In the indirect category, she included things like death due to poorly conducted or clandestine abortion, maternal mortality, death from harmful practices, deaths linked to human trafficking, drug dealing, organized crime, and gang-related activities, the deaths of girls or women from simple neglect through starvation or ill-treatment, and deliberate acts or omissions by the state. So these categories provide really strong and clear examples of femicide, which happen in the private sphere, as well as in the public sphere, at the hands of intimate partners, as well as at the hands of family members, and even third parties, as well as state actors. So, of course, femicide is not limited to only these forms. For example, there are cases of what some refer to as suicide femicide, which involves the commission of suicide by a victim of persistence and in intolerable violence over a period of time. There are also cases of cold-blooded targeted assassinations of women in political and public life. For example, of judges, politicians, journalists, which are also driven by misogynistic views and conducted as reprisals against those who challenge existing norms and hierarchies as they relate to men and women. There's also the systematic use of rape, brutalization and murder of women and girls as a weapon of war in the context of armed conflict. So I think all of these examples really establish that femicide happens in so many different forms that it's not possible to put it in one strict definition. And we have to recognize that there are these different forms that are also context specific, that happen in different spheres, that are perpetrated by different actors. And what's also clear though, is also that, you know, when you use an intersectional lens, there is evidence to show that certain subgroups of women 
based mm-hmm. on certain factors or grounds, such as but not limited to race, ethnicity, sexual orientation or gender identity, disability, and caste, face a higher risk of violence and femicide. Mm-hmm. Additionally, it's also clear that the risk of femicide exists throughout a woman's life cycle. So during infancy, childhood, adolescence, adulthood, and old age. So really the bottom line is that there are many different forms of femicide which occur in all different spheres of women's lives. And women really are not safe anywhere. Okay, I'm listening to you and I'm thinking to myself, oh my God, this is such a, an elaborate description because I know it's also covered what we go through here in Kenya. And you, when you get to see a lot of uh, WHRDs who are killed for fighting for other women or even women just killed in their home. Yes, um, I think one way to refer to it is um, femicide um, in the context of interpersonal violence. Yes. So a partner, right? An intimate partner, someone you trust, someone you believe in, someone you rely on, you have an intimate relationship, um, can be a perpetrator of femicide. And that is the reality uh, for women and girls in many cases. In fact, the majority of femicides, I believe, are committed by intimate partners. Um, There's also evidence that older women also are victims of femicide. Um, and, you know, the perpetrators are their son or a son of a woman, an yes. older woman. There's evidence yeah. that from the United Kingdom that mm. we have come across. And I'm sure this is not limited to the United Kingdom. But it's such a glaring example of the risks, again, that women and girls face throughout their life cycle in their own homes when a person's home should be the safest place and most peaceful place. Yes. for a person on earth. And yet we see that it is probably the most dangerous place for many women. And that's also what makes this issue really important. And I think what you said yeah. earlier about the surge, especially in the context of COVID, I mean, that's one of the reasons why we decided to focus on femicide this year, because it's so clear that the COVID pandemic and its consequences, right, the measures that have been introduced, to contain the pandemic, which was uh, a huge priority for governments everywhere. Uh, you know, this idea that lockdowns have to be imposed to save lives actually mm. ended up putting yes. a lot of women and girls at risk. Yeah. And, you know, it restricted their mobility. It made, you know, it sort of isolated them from regular support systems. And all of these have contributed to an increase in gender-based violence against women globally. Uh, and we have seen a spike in domestic violence and femicides. I mean, there are countries, we've seen reports of um, how femicides have increased, domestic violence and femicides have increased in countries like Spain, Mexico, the United States, Namibia, even Turkey, and in other parts of the world. Mm-hmm. Interestingly, um, in Iceland, uh, there's also been a spike. There was a spike in the first few weeks of lockdown. Apparently, mm-hmm. 50% of murders of women are committed by an intimate partner, which is higher than the global average of 38% in Iceland. Wow. And Iceland wow. generally has very good indicators on gender equality. Yeah. So that is quite a shocking statistic. Um, and in Honduras, as per data released in 2021 until March, uh, it showed that a femicide is recorded every 36 hours. Um, data from 2017 and 18. Uh, from South Africa shows that a woman is murdered every three hours. And this is prior to COVID. 
So, you know, there's, it goes on. The Caribbean uh, data from Guyana shows that femicides happened at the rate of 8.8 .8 per 100,000 women compared to El Salvador, where it's 6.8. And El Salvador has the highest rate in Latin America. Mm -hmm. So it's clear that the gender-based violence crisis has further worsened during the pandemic. Yes. And these surges, well, another concern is that these surges have happened in, in a broader context of rollbacks of women's rights and regression. So even in countries where femicide is formally recognized as a crime, there have been attempts to undo the law, for example, in Mexico. Mm -hmm. So while most countries have been unprepared to deal with the surge, and may have cut vital support services which have contributed to the surge. Some have been pressed to deal with this crisis because of strong media attention and protests by activists, which I think mm -hmm. has been critically important because they're the ones who've been reporting on this yeah. issue. I mean, the other reason why we decided to focus on femicide this year is also the issue of impunity, which is related to the surge, right? Yes. The surge has happened also in part because of the impunity. And we see that despite political commitments, obligations mm -hmm. under international law, calls to action from local activists, and pressure mm -hmm. from international bodies, governments have simply not done enough to end femicide or to adequately prioritize it as a policy issue. And this mm -hmm. has also contributed to the societal acceptance of femicide as well as widespread impunity. In addition, the lack of a universal definition of femicide and the failure to frame the issue as intentional murder resulting from misogynistic intent and actions have led it to being normalized and often ignored. There has been a troubling trend of some cases being taken more seriously and prioritized over others, revealing even greater impunity in cases such as those involving, for example, Black women, Indigenous women, and other women of color. Yeah. Violence against women and girls of color. Um, and I know this is a term that is often used in the United States to denote non-white women, but it is a very mm. clear example. Uh, I mean, there is evidence to show that in the media, certain cases get more coverage than others. Yes. Um, so violence against women and girls of color and those mm. from lower socioeconomic backgrounds, mm. as well as in certain occupations, occupations that may be stigmatized or considered to be low level occupation yes. made to women and girls who experience who are killed murdered in those contexts those cases receive far less uh, attention from institutional gatekeepers mm -hmm. and when the media does pay attention harmful stereotypes are often replicated in the reports that cover these crimes so there are many things that actually also contribute to mm. the impunity mm. um there is one more uh, reason you, you, okay. if you want me to <laughs> yes, you can but go we ahead. Have three go reasons. Ahead. Yeah, we have yes. three reasons why we chose this issue. And I think the third reason is also really important. Yes. You know, the past few years, especially before COVID, we saw a growing wave of feminist activism through public mm. protests against femicide. Mm. Now, in some countries, these protests were met with violence by state actors. Mm. Chile is an example of a country where protesters were actually threatened with criminal proceedings. Now, since yeah. 2020, state authorities, especially with the onset of COVID, have restricted public gatherings through lockdowns and restrictive measures. And in doing so, they've really interrupted the momentum of anti-femicide protests, which had started picking up around the world. And such drastic measures, I think, have also exposed the institutional failings on the part of law enforcement agencies in responding 
to individual cases of femicide. Those have also yes. happened in parallel. And what we've yes. also seen, which compounds this problem even more, and you know, and when you think about the role of the state and the responsibility of the state, is that there are yes. many cases of femicide that have been reported by the military and by police. And these murders are relatively less frequently reported in comparison to other types of violence. Mm -hmm. So these uh, murders actually re represent blatant abuses of power, fostered by mm -hmm. a lack of government oversight of law enforcement and security personnel. So mm -hmm. it's really because of all of these reasons that we thought that this year, on the 30th anniversary of the campaign, we must focus on femicide and make a really strong call to action to end femicide. As you were talking, you know how you have, when someone is speaking and then you have these things that are flashing in your head and you're thinking, yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense because of the description that you have made, uh, so elaborately made. Um, for me, Ireland, I, Iceland was a shocker. That those statistics you've given me are a shocker because the other day I was just watching a video and they, they were saying it was one of the best countries for women to live in. It has equality like crazy and stuff. And then you get to hear this. Um, and then, like you said, it depends on who it has affected because it's, it, you know, inequality is not equal. So you remember there's a case, there's a recent case that just has just ended a white lady in the U S who went, um, I think they went driving with their boyfriend and they hitchhiked all over. And they, there was a there was a word that was coined, the white girl syndrome, because guys guys began to say on CNN, on BBC, on um, on CNN, BBC, uh, CBS, everywhere, everything I was watching, every and Al Jazeera. If this issue had been about a black girl, would it have gotten this kind of attention, a colored girl or an African American, you know that that kind of thing? So, or even let's, let's not even just say the states, if it's in, in Africa, really it gets no attention. Um, and then, uh, as you described femicide, it then brought to my mind, um, some about six women, older women in their seventies who were killed in Kenya in a part of this country because they were accused of being witches. Nobody had proof. So the police is even taking it up because nobody had proof and they just went in and they killed them in the middle of the night, you know, dead of the night. And they did it systematically. Like, you know how they do to, they kill two today, tomorrow, and you don't know where they're going to hit. So that area has had older women being taken out by their, 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 their children and telling them, please go live elsewhere so that then now we secure you. But why would somebody need to live elsewhere? It's because a government has not taken it very seriously. So, yeah, so thank you so much for that very elaborate description. Really, it's, it's an eye-opener. So on to the second question. Um, Srilatha Balitwala, a South Asian feminist scholar, authored a primer re uh, titled All About Power as part of CREA's Feminist Leadership for Transformation series. In it, Srilatha opines that Understanding power in terms of both power structures and power relations is important for anyone who is an activist working for social change. So the question is, as we reflect on this quote, what would you say are the three main systemic structural barriers that have contributed to continued impunity 
when it comes to femicide? I know you have alluded to some. Um, can you give us some more? Yes, of course. Um, you asked the three main, so I'm going to just name yeah. three, but there are many. Of no, but if you if you can um, add, it would be good so that then we keep yeah. learning. This is such a beautiful learning session. Yeah. <laughs> well, one barrier that comes to mind right away, and maybe this is my bias because I'm a lawyer, is the absence mm -hmm. of robust legal frameworks that prohibit, ah. that explicitly and clearly prohibit femicide in all of its forms. Now, mm -hmm. And this is particularly problematic because we are still largely governed by patriarchal norms that permit misogyny and hate crimes against women based on their sex or gender. And there are also norms and mm -hmm. laws that discriminate against women that keep them in a subordinate position and make them vulnerable to violence. This is the general state of things, whether we look at, um, you know, the political system, the health system, you know, the public sphere in general, um, the way our economies work, the way, you know, political processes work, there is an inherent bias and there's a disadvantage that is deeply entrenched, which really puts women in a vulnerable position oftentimes and makes them vulnerable to discrimination and violence that manifests in them not having autonomy or being denied autonomy, being denied their voice, being denied the right to participate and to really shape laws, policies, institutions, and to shape priorities, to shape decisions about the allocation of resources. So there's this inherent patriarchal bias that we all reel under. So that's why I think very clear legal frameworks that do not reinforce that imbalance, but mm. create equilibrium and equality, and also recognize the very specific needs, risks, and vulnerabilities that women and girls face is very important. Yes. I think another barrier is the failure of law enforcement and key institutions, and including health systems, to engage in femicide prevention. And in the case of law enforcement specifically, their failure to respond to cases of femicide. Now, femicide, especially the ones perpetrated by intimate partners, are preceded by a continuum of violence over a period of time. This is typically the case. And there are early warning signals that are often missed and this is where the health system can play a much stronger role. Mm -hmm. Now, when women and girls report cases of violence and abuse, which is really hard to do in the first place, they are too, far too often not taken seriously due to gender stereotyping and even the notion held by some that domestic violence is a private matter. Mm -hmm. Law enforcement agents may refuse to register cases, to issue and enforce protection orders. They may be too quick to put an abuser back on the street and in the home of a victim, which then reproduces the cycle of abuse, which then at some point becomes fatal and ends in femicide. So there are also cases of corruption and collusion between law enforcement and, for example, big businesses who neglect violence and harassment in the world of work. And I think the example from Mexico, the brutal murders of women workers, migrant women workers over many years mm. in Ciudad Juarez, Mexico, which is also where I think the term, I believe, the term femicide kind of originated. Mm. You know, it goes back and it's linked to those murders, that concept. Mm. Um, you know, this, the case of Ciudad Juarez, Mexico really reveals this nexus between corruption, business, and even, uh, drug violence. 
So there are these in larger institutional, I think, um, sort of connections and relationships as well, uh, where law enforcement failures really have a very serious impact. And then the third point that I will make is really, um, you know, a, a barrier that emanates from power of imbalance and expresses itself in the form of unequal power is really discrimination against women and girls within the institution of the family itself. Yeah. You know, we talked earlier about how home is not the safest place, but it's actually one of the most dangerous places for many women. And there's a reason for this. And one of the reasons is discrimination that happens very spontaneously and naturally oftentimes within that particular sphere. Now, home is the space where the process and, you know, of socialization and internalization of gendered roles begins. And behaviors that eventually manifest in toxic masculinity and female subordination take root. Now, of course, there are external factors that also foster these attitudes. But the evidence shows clearly that the majority of femicides are perpetrated by intimate partners followed by family members. So when you juxtapose this with societal norms and the common expectation that women and girls must endure violence in silence in the name of protecting the family, or that they must accept the use of violence against them as a male prerogative. Mm -hmm. Say, for example, in the name of protecting a family's honor or as a legitimate consequence of defiance of, or non-compliance with certain expectations, it really puts women and girls in a dangerous trap. And the last place that should be dangerous for a woman, as we have been saying repeatedly during this conversation, yes. is her own home, but it is. And these behaviors then get reproduced from one generation to the next. Yeah. So I think these three sort of categories of institutional barriers are ones where the power imbalance really reflects and power relations need to be transformed mm -hmm. as a starting so, point. So, you know, Melissa, when you say something, then my mind goes like, yeah, you know, in my, <laughs> I go like, yeah, that is, yeah, that is what that meant. Okay. So as you speak, my, you know how you, when somebody says something and then you go like, yeah, that was that. And that meant that, yeah, because now you're putting in the links. Okay. So on to our third question, uh, gender-based violence against uh, women uh, data has mostly focused on measuring domestic violence and its prevalence. But this is changing with increasing recognition that the whole continuum of GBVAW, or just basically just gender-based violence against women, needs to be captured from harassment to femicide. Because I think there's a lot of bias on only the gender-based violence or on one side, and femicide is never covered. Um, and if it's covered, it's very little. I think that is also a witness here in this country, um, in the global south. Um, this year's 16 days rallying call or theme, if you like, is from awareness to accountability in relation to femicide. So the question is, why did CWGL settle on this rallying call? And what recommendations would you make for decision makers to strengthen accountability for enhance and impunity on femicide. So for the campaign, I mean, we we recognize and we we celebrate the fact that 
um, around the world, November 25th to December 10th is a time when activists and many others come together yeah. to, to advocate for um, stronger measures to address violence against women, to raise awareness and to also talk about different forms of violence against women and gender-based violence. So the issue is spotlighted, although many forms and the issues are spotlighted during that period. But we recognize that as activists, you know, the work to end violence has to continue all year round. And it does, because activists do work all year round. So mm-hmm. for us, the whole idea of 16 to 365 is to really connect the hard work that activists do all year round, their persistence mm-hmm. and their efforts, but then also to mark the culmination or to mark a culmination once a year when everyone comes together to amplify each other's voice and each other's call to action. Because whether you're working on femicide or on ending unsafe abortion or specifically domestic violence, you are at the end of the day demanding one thing, an end to gender-based violence in all forms and stronger accountability from governments, right? Because they are legally obligated to end femicide. And it's also a matter of justice. It's a matter mm-hmm. of justice for women, right? Women constitute half of humanity. And yet look at the disparities and the level of discrimination and just the sheer violence. So there has to be an end to this oppression. Yes. And I think that is the ultimate mission and goal of really coming together and um, expressing solidarity with each other. So the 16 days are crucial. There's absolutely no doubt in whatever way you commemorate or mark the annual campaign. But our idea of 365 is also to connect all of those activities that happen all year round. So with regard to femicide, one overarching recommendation that we have is simply to governments that, you know, what we want to say to governments is that they must make ending the killing of women because of their sex and or gender a national priority. And three things that they can do is, first of all, legally prohibit all forms of femicide and establish legal frameworks to bring perpetrators to justice and ensure enforcement. There must be consequences for femicide. This is too serious a crime to just let it slide. Second, governments must establish and invest in femicide watches to gather data on femicide because that's the information that is going to help shape laws and policies and strengthen prevention and determine where resources shall be allocated. And it's also going to help make the different forms of femicide more visible. So this kind of investment is really important. And a femicide watch may be established as a separate institution, or it may be housed um, in, you know, a, a ministry or an academic institution may do it. There are many different ways in which femicide watches can be established. Some yeah. are at the national level. You can do it at the local level. Uh, but I think these femicide watches need to be established in one form or another. And then strengthening coordination among different sectors, law enforcement, health, business, criminal justice, and more to end femicide. There must be more of a coordinated effort and a prioritization of, um, you know, the objective of ending femicide. To activists, I would say, you know, we really need to build solidarity by joining the campaign this year to amplify the calls to end femicide. So I would love to see activists around the world just 
amplify the call to end femicide. And it's really easy to do. You know, for better or for worse, COVID has put us more in the virtual world. We're doing mm. a lot more <laughs> on the internet. Yeah. We're doing a lot yeah. more on social media. I yeah. think amplifying this call to action. So, you know, an organization may be focusing on what a particular issue that is really important to them in the local context. That's fine. But if they can also just within their work, within the 16 days also integrate uh, an action to amplify this call to action to end femicide, then that will really help. I think we need to create that convergence of voices and activities. And then, you know, that can very easily be done by following the global 16 days campaign on social media, uh, mm -hmm. where, you know, you can join us at, at 16 days campaign on Twitter, as well as Facebook. We would like you to amplify our messages and we will amplify yours. Mm. And of course, there are more recommendations for action um, that we have uh, included in an advocacy guide. In this advocacy guide, we talk about the issue of femicide as we see it from a human rights and feminist perspective. In many ways, it's just the tip of the iceberg because this is a huge topic. But the idea of including a discussion on femicide and looking at uh, it, you know, through an intersectional lens, a feminist lens, talking about human rights standards, the obligations of government, and also some of the regression, the context, and why we have chosen to highlight this issue. We've used that as a basis to um, create a list of action points for activists that can be undertaken at the community level, most local level, the national level, regional, as well as global, because actions are needed at all levels. So. I would also recommend uh, and request that um, activists look at the 2021 guide and action menu and, um, you know, hopefully take some action towards ending femicide. Um, I like what I'm hearing, that there must be consequences of uh, uh, anybody who goes through femicide there must be like tangible consequences and then the issue of amplifying the issue with and and providing the well, amplifying the issue and providing solutions also and amplifying the solutions um i like it because it's very holistic um as we say in kenya asante sana it means thank you very much do you have any last words any last um uh rallying call to our listeners I would just say very humbly that we need to work together. I think that's the most important thing, regardless of where you're from, regardless of where you're based as women. I think we face enormous challenges. So working in solidarity, working outside our silos. And that doesn't mean that we abandon what we're doing and start doing something else, but finding ways to connect and support each other and strengthen each other's advocacy and leverage each other's advocacy is really important and i think it's good it's going to be a key determinant of you know our success down the road and we will succeed a, a world without violence is possible and we need to make it happen thank you so much thank you so much for expounding this for helping us understand the history behind it the thinking behind it and appreciating um you know how when you think Okay, so that was that femicide or what was it? Now we know what femicide is and we are really grateful. And also what I'm also very happy about 
uh, being uh, somebody who is in advocacy, I really like that you guys have a toolkit that uh, activists can actually just go pick and use it and situate it in their in their environments. So that I am really grateful about. Thank you, listeners. We you stayed with us as we discussed um, creating a nuanced understanding on femicide. This is a five-part series co-curated by Feminet and Womankind Worldwide to commemorate 16 days of activism 2021. In the next episode, we'll be looking at femicide and women human rights defenders. Don't forget to join us, Melissa. Thank you very much. Thank you.